This morning's passage as we continue in the book of 1 Corinthians is 1 Corinthians chapter 12, uh, verses 1 through 11. If you would like to follow along with the Bibles there in your seats, that's page 959. Last week we looked about uh, at the issue of unity around the Lord's Supper and how to receive that grace in a way that is pleasing to God. Uh, Paul continues to give instructions to the church, particularly addressing matters uh, that pertain to how to worship well. Let's attend now to God's word, asking that his spirit would speak in and through these words to us, his people. 1 Corinthians 12, 1 through 11. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord, except in the Holy Spirit. Now, there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by the one Spirit, to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another the ability to distinguish between spirits, to another various kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit, who apportions to each one individually as he wills. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Let's pray. Lord, we have heard your word and asked as we went into it that your spirit would work, and we pray that you, by your spirit, would continue to work in us to open our eyes and our ears and our hearts to what you have to say to us this morning, that your eternal truth would have its way with us right here, right now. May you grant me to speak your word in a way that is for the good of your people. Would all that falls short be quickly forgotten, blown away like chaff upon the wind. Be glorified in this time. Would it be worship to you? Amen. Sometimes the supper table can be a place for debate, even conflict. For sometimes, uh, some families, the, the main debate around the dinner table might be sports. Uh, which team is best? Sometimes it gets a little bit more serious. There can be debates around the dinner table about religion or even politics. In our household, in the hard home, Debate at the dinner table centers around ketchup. Not the brand, that's a settled thing. Not whether we like ketchup or not, we all enjoy it. But there is division because there is a faction in our household, marked by their shorter stature, who view ketchup as the meal. It's not a condiment, it's not just a mere flavor enhancer, but it is the entree. The hot dog is just a utensil for getting the sweet, tangy ketchup to the mouth. You don't even need to take a bite as long as there is ketchup on it. The taller 
older faction wants to encourage them towards maturity to realize that the ketchup is not the meal, it just accompanies the main dish. Most of us understand that over time, even though sometimes we may have a bit too much ketchup with our french fries, that we will set that aside to focus on the main dish. It's interesting that Paul, when he starts this letter to the Corinthians, who think themselves so mature, so wise, so gifted, talks about their immaturity through the language of food. They want bread, they want meat, but they're only ready for bread, some of them only for milk. They are immature, they're not wise as to what matters most. And as Paul is beginning a, has begun a section focusing on worship, he's dealt with the roles of men and women and how they are participating in worship. Last week we looked at the Lord's Supper. Now Paul begins a section in the larger section on worship where he will begin to unpack the issues that the Corinthians are having with their understanding and use of spiritual gifts within worship. And we'll look at this issue over a number of weeks, and if you have questions about various spiritual gifting, I uh, hope that some of those will be addressed in future sermons. But one of the issues that's beginning to arise is it seems that some of the gifts are prized more highly than other spiritual gifts, particularly, as we'll see in coming chapters, the gift of tongues and speaking in tongues in worship. But as groups are saying, this is an important gift, this is a very important gift, this is the most important gift, it has resulted in the Corinthian church in pride, in envy, in misuse of the gifts, and in division. In the passage that we're reading this morning, Paul lays the groundwork for confronting this issue for addressing the pride and the misuse and the division within the body from the way that they are prioritizing and evaluating the various spiritual gifts. But Paul doesn't do it by diminishing the gift. He doesn't try to tear down the Corinthians who are exalting and being arrogant and boastful in their gifts of tongues. Rather, he seeks to draw their attention away from the gifts to the giver, to the Spirit. So very often in our lives as Christians, as simplistic as it may seem, the starting place is to look to the Lord. Whether it's to confront issues of temptation, uh, to move past problems, we are called to look to the Lord, to God, to help us. And so Paul draws attention to the work of the Spirit, to the one, the same Holy Spirit who has given all of these gifts, not multiple false gods, not the demonic spirits of their pagan past, nor are they to be divided up in the way that we, they respond to his gifting, but they are to look to the one spirit, the spirit of God, who has given these gifts to understand how they are to use them in their worship as God's people. And so as we look at the work of the spirit, as Paul draws their attention away from the gifts to the giver, we see that if we are to respond to the gifts that God has given us, we need to first look to the Spirit's first gift, the most important gift. Then we need to consider the source of these gifts in understanding what we're supposed to do with them and then ask 
How are we to use them? Well, Paul doesn't directly confront the issue of how they are elevating tongues. He makes it clear that this is not going to be a comfortable conversation for them. The passage starts out, Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. If there is anything that the Corinthians think they know about, it's spiritual gifts. That's their thing. That's how they understand themselves. We are a gifted, blessed community. We have all reason to be boastful and proud. Look at us. They have viewed themselves as very informed about spiritual gifts. And so Paul is saying, you think you know, but I'm afraid you don't. So Paul draws attention away from the gifts to how they have been evaluating gifts And he points them to their pagan past. If you'll remember that this is a Roman city and most of them don't have a Christian background because they were pagans worshiping the gods of the Greeks and Romans. They don't even have a Jewish background of worshiping the one and only God. But they have come from pagan backgrounds. And as he points to that, he calls into question their confidence and their prioritization of their understanding of how these gifts could be used. You know, ecstatic sayings, spirit-filled utterances were not new or unique to Christianity. They showed up in various forms and manners in the pagan practices of those days. And it seems that perhaps those experiences, those memories, are shaping how they perceive the gifts of the spirit, particularly the gift of tongues and its importance. So Paul is trying to help them distinguish from what the Spirit is doing now, from what they experienced in the past. He does so first by contrasting mute idols with the God who speaks. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. In various ways, they found themselves worshiping these mute idols. While these false gods might have prophets or priests or mediums who purported to speak, the will or the language of those false gods, the idols themselves did not speak. But God does. He speaks in the Old Testament. He speaks aloud. He speaks through his prophets whose actions confirm the truth of the word. He speaks the world into being. And in Jesus, he speaks, not just as a pass-through, but Jesus who himself the one that speaks with authority so that the people ask, who is this? That he speaks on God's behalf with such authority. He draws attention saying, well, you've spoken this way in the past. You guys had these gifts in this way that came from these mute idols. Consider who it is that you worship now, the God who speaks. But secondly, Paul distinguishes the nature of the sayings to point to the difference of the sources. He contrasts the sayings under the influence of the false spirits versus the Holy Spirit. Because under the influence of false gods, whatever sense of power, whatever sense of experiential religion, whatever being in touch with the universe they thought they had, under the influence of these false gods, they were able to say things like, Jesus is accursed. If you are daring to compare your 
religious experience and how it makes you feel and why this spiritual gift must be the most important and you are judging it through the lens of past experiential religion, maybe you should remember what you were able to do under that false religion, which has cursed the very name of Jesus. Is that who you want to be comparing your present understanding of the gifts to? Whereas it is only by the work of the Holy Spirit that one can make the confession, Jesus is Lord. And it is in this contrast that Paul is not trying to just divest the Corinthians of their former way of thinking, not just calling them to be wary of looking at their spiritual gifts through the lens of their worldly past, but he is drawing their attention beyond the various gifts to the most important gift, the gift of their salvation. Because Paul isn't just saying, well, the ability to form the words Jesus with Lord, Jesus is Lord, is only possible by the Holy Spirit. He's not talking about mere utterance. He's talking about profession of faith. And, and in so doing, if, if we pay attention to the actual words here, we'll, we'll see the significance. Because when we read Jesus as Lord, that might not strike us. Those who have grown up in the Christian world, in the West, or around church reading the Bible that Jesus is Lord. And, and many of us will read that through the lens of Jesus is master. Jesus is in charge. Jesus is the one that's the Lord of my life. But if we read what he's saying there right, this isn't just an acknowledgement that Jesus is in charge. This is a confession that Jesus is God. It might be better had the translators of the ESV and other texts use the uppercase here, Jesus is the Lord, Yahweh. It is only by the work of the Spirit that the Jews who had worshipped God by the name Yahweh could recognize that this carpenter who lived and taught among them, who died and rose again, was indeed the second person of the Trinity, the same Lord that they had worshipped in the Old Testament. It is only through the work of the Spirit that the pagans who worshipped everything as gods, who worshipped mute idols and said, this is God or this is Lord, would be able to say, no, Jesus is Lord. Peter in Acts chapter 2 quotes Joel 2, and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. He builds the argument from Psalm 16 and Psalm 110 and other Old Testament to point to the fact that Jesus is the Lord and that to call upon his name is the means of our salvation. To call upon the name of the Lord was the hope of the Old Testament people. And Peter is saying, if you call upon the name of Jesus, it is the same hope. The mute idols, the false gods, the demonic could only lead you astray. They could only pervert, but the power of God at work through the Holy Spirit not only speaks, but has gifted us with the ability to speak the truth that salvation is in Christ alone. Many of us are familiar with Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. It's not by works that we are saved. It is through faith, which is a gift of God. Not, not only has God given us the gift of salvation, but the capacity to receive that gift in faith 
is the work of the Holy Spirit. Not only does God save, not only does he give the gift of salvation, but the primary work of the Spirit in and among his people, its foremost gift is to give us the capacity to see Jesus and recognize him as God. To change our hearts of stone to hearts of flesh. This is the work of the Spirit we see in John 10 when, Paul, when Jesus is saying, I am the good shepherd and my sheep know the shepherd's voice. It's only those that the Spirit has worked in that can recognize Jesus as Lord. It's, it's what Jesus is alluding to in John chapter 3 when he's talking to Nicodemus. And Nicodemus asks, well, how must I be saved? And Jesus says, you must be born again. And Nicodemus says, okay, I can do that. No, he says, how is it possible? Am I supposed to go back to my mother's womb? No. Jesus says, it's like the wind. You can see the effects of the wind, but you cannot direct it. You cannot control it. This is the work of the Spirit. This is the greatest gift of God. Is not the ability to speak in tongues. Is not religious experience. It's not to be lifted up among the congregation as being gifted and talented and important. The greatest gift of the Spirit, the preeminent gift, is the ability to utter in faith, Jesus is Lord. Not too long ago, I got a gift that has become one of my favorite gifts. If you can read it in the font used for all the Star Wars things, it says, I am their father and list my four children underneath. I can't do anything with this. I can put it up on my bureau, but I can't fix anything around the house. I can't eat it. I can't wear it. It is one of my favorite gifts. Because it's not the gift that is demonstrated here. What it points to is the greater gift that I get to be their dad. Paul says, whether it is the gift of tongues, whether it is the gift of wisdom, whether it is the gift of mercy and healings, whatever gift the Spirit has given you is reflective of the greater gift, the most important gift that he has worked faith in you so that you can say, Jesus is Lord, not only to receive salvation, but to receive the capacity to receive salvation. And so when we see the goodness and generosity of God in our gifts, or in the gifts of our brothers and sisters as they use their gifts, it should point us back to the generosity of God in Christ, who is generous not only sending his son to shed his blood on the cross for the salvation of our sins, but sending his spirit so that we could cry, Abba, Father, so we could be made sons as Jesus' is son. Whether we are gifted as preachers, whether we are gifted in compassion or as merciful servants in the body of Christ, we are meant to rejoice in the graciousness of God who gave us before those gifts, his son. When we are tempted to be divided by our gifts, to prioritize ourselves, to be misusing our gifts, the word of God says the spirit's first most important gift is the ability to confess Christ. Paul then redirects them not only to the Spirit as the one who gave them faith and therefore rejecting their evaluation of gifts through their prior experiences when they were pagans, he then calls them to the unity of the source of their gifts. 
There is a diversity of gifts, but there is one source, and it's emphatic here in the text. Now there are a variety of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them. Even as he begins listing out the various gifts, he makes it clear that they're all tied together. For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom. To another, utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit. To another, faith by the same Spirit. While they are focused on the distinction of gifts, the various groups and seeking to be divided because some have one portion of gifts and others different types of gifts. Some have prominent gifts. Some have gifts that are in the background. Paul says, before you divide yourselves, look to the unity of the source the Spirit. He not only gives the gifts, the service, and the activities, he's not only the source as the giver, but he empowers them all in everyone. And then verse 11 takes that up again. Not only does he empower them, but he apportions to each one individually as he wills. Paul directs their attention to the Spirit as the source of their gifts, the giver of their gifts. It's supposed to have two effects for them. First, it should cause them to honor the diversity of gifts. And it should lead to their humility as the recipients of those gifts. When they consider the Spirit as the source, they need to honor the diversity. The Spirit has appointed these various gifts as good and necessary for God's purposes within the church. When we tend to build things, when we tend to shape things, we tend to go with our preferences, what we experience, and what we know. And so often it is very limited. That's not the way the Lord works. The mission of glorifying God, the mission of worshiping him, of proclaiming the new, good news, of loving our neighbor, is enabled as the Spirit has chosen, according to the infinite wisdom of God, to give us a variety of gifts through a variety of people. And while the list here is not exhaustive, it's just meant to be a, a sampling of the various gifts, notice it indicates a diversity. Some of these gifts are the gifts of speaking, some of them are authority. Some of them are gifts of power. Notice even how he, he emphasizes the variety from the same source when he says there are a variety of gifts, a variety of service, and there are varieties of activities. Even as we evaluate the gifts, we realize that some of them appear more through activity, others through service, others through being upfront and speaking. Yet God has chosen a variety. And part of the reasons we're supposed to see that is in connecting the diversity of the gifts to the singular source, Paul is highlighting that this diversity is God's intention. God's glorification of himself in the church. The bride that Christ is adorning for himself is a diverse group of people with different personalities, with different backgrounds, and with different gifts and ministries within the local and the universal church. It, it, it kind of means that if we understand that there is one source, that the Holy Spirit, the eternal God, is the giver of gifts, we should be a lot like Walmart in one way and not like Walmart in the other way. The thing about Walmart and stores like Walmart is you can go in and find just about anything, right? 
They have a diversity of things. You can get groceries. You can sometimes get tires. You can decorate your house. You can get officeware and so on and so on. When we go into the church, the local church, it should not just be one sort of gift. The things that God has given us to offer to the world in his name are meant to be manifold and diverse. But in the some other way, we're not supposed to be like Walmart or McDonald's or any other corporate chain where the assumption is, well, if it's like this in one town, you go to the next town or to the next country and it's the exact same. God is not building a corporate franchise. God is building his kingdom. And in that kingdom, he uses the, the gifts of those with educations to the umpteenth degree and those who haven't finished high school. He gives gifts to men and women. He gives gifts to those in the northern hemisphere, in the southern hemisphere, in the western and eastern hemispheres. And in those various places, according to their various capacities and gifts that might look different than ours, God has glorified himself in giving a variety of gifts. Which means not only are we called to cultivate the use of our gifts, but therefore the gift of others. If God has chosen, intended, as the single source of the variety of gifts to give such gifts to the church, then we need to be looking for a variety of gifts among us. Not only to encourage others, but giving a variety of opportunities for service. I think that's one thing that the elders and I in the church are, are hoping to grow in. As we think about the ministry of the church, that we realize that for the glorification of God, there are various ways to serve. You don't just serve by teaching Sunday school. You don't just serve by leading a small group. But there is service of compassion. There is service of prayer. There is service of all sorts. And if we are reflecting the glory of God, then we are reflecting that through a diversity of gifts. Attention to the single source of these diverse gifts causes us not to divide them, but to honor them in that diversity, but it also humbles the recipient. Paul says, the source of your gifts is the Spirit. It's not you. The spiritual gifts are not the result of some inward search, of some self-improvement program, or even some spiritual fitness regimen. They are gifts. While we are called to discern and nurture them and exercise them, the starting place for them is the Lord, not us. There are a variety of gifts, but the same spirit. They are gifts from God. He has not only is the one that empowers them, but he is the one who apportions to each one individually as he wills. What this means is, this should humble the proud. And this is of particular importance for the Corinthians who are struggling with pride and boasting and groups that want to say, I'm more important because I follow this person. Or I'm more important because I speak well. Or I'm more important because I have the, this gift as opposed to that gift. We see this as Paul addresses a variety of gifts, but because it seems that the gift of tongues is one that they value more, he puts it at the end of the list. And as he does so, he reminds them that the gifts are not earned, they're appointed. They're not merited, but they are given as grace. 
The word for gifts here is the same word that is translated in other places as grace. Just as we understand it is by faith and not our works by which we receive salvation, so it is with the gifts that God gives the church for the edification, for the work of the church. We don't earn it. It's not ours. It's not only important for individual pride, but for church pride. There are churches with various gifts. There are denominations with particular proclivities. And at times, we can lift those gifts up as a means to lift ourselves up. Instead of acknowledging, well, sometimes our Baptist brothers and sisters seem to have a little bit more zeal. Sometimes our charismatic brothers and sisters, for all of our disagreements, really enjoy worship. We need to be careful when we remember who the source of our gifts are to be humbled. The spirit whose work is to reveal Christ and glorify the Christ has given us these gifts. But in humbling the recipients of the gift, we need to remember that humility is not just not being proud. I've repeated the words of Tim Keller before when he says that humility is not thinking less of ourselves, but thinking of ourselves less. And so, yes, it will diminish uh, the pride of those who are arrogant and boasting, but humility also can free us from the shame and the guilt and the anxiety when we feel less than, when we don't feel up to it. While Paul is speaking about the priority of gifts and their exercise, notice that he doesn't give a biblical hierarchy. And when we allow ourselves, because we say, I don't have that gift, my gift doesn't seem as significant, no one seems to appreciate my gift the way that they appreciate other gifts, we are letting the man's judgment, man's prioritization, speak louder than God. But the Spirit who reveals Christ and glorifies the Father is telling us through the giving of gifts, whatever they are, that He loves us and He has given us the high calling of serving in His church. When we are prone to self-doubt and focusing on our inadequacies or feeling less than when we judge ourselves compared to other people's giftings, one of the ways that we are reminded of the truth is that we are the gift. In Ephesians 4.11, Paul says to the church there, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teacher to equip the saints for the work. Whatever gift that the Spirit gives for the work of ministry is embodied in the person that God has given to the church. You. You are a gift. God testifies to his goodness and power through you. Your presence in worship, your fellowship with other saints, your rejoicing with others, mourning with others is a gift. Psalm 84, 9 through 12 helps us understand that when we consider God is the source, the Spirit is the source of our gifts, it is a blessing and we should be humbled. It says this, Behold our shield, O God, look on the face of your anointed, for a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. To serve in your courts, whatever our role, is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God 
than dwell in the tents of wickedness. For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, blessed is the one who trusts in you. Whether we're serving in the nursery, whether we are sitting with those who are ill, leading a devotional, lifting others up in prayer, sharing the gospel with a stranger, every one of those activities is a gift from the Almighty God. An opportunity for us to glorify Him together. An opportunity to be, to be humbled. that He would give us the gift of serving Him. Paul draws the attention of the Corinthians to the the greatest gift that the Spirit gives in the ability to confess Christ into the fact that the Spirit is the source of all of those gifts according to His grace and not their merit. And then he directs us in how to use those gifts when we rightly understand where they come from. Verse 7 says this, To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit. Why? For the common good. Just as the gifts aren't for self-promotion, they aren't just for our private benefit. We're meant to use these gifts in a way that is good for those around us. One of the most important ways to do that is to glorify God. We can often look at praise and worship through the lens of the individual. I need to find my gift... I need to find my niche within, within which I use my gift, and then my relationship with God will be better and He will be praised in me. But the diversity that's been described, the various gifts come from the same Spirit because they're meant to be used in union. We are one, for we all have the same spirit. We eat of the same loaf, as Paul reminded them earlier. And so we are meant to use our various diverse gifts from the same spirit together to glorify God. You can think of it this way. Bricks are a wonderful means of building something, right? They're strong, they're durable. But there is a big difference between stacking brick on brick in a pile or a tower Versus laying bricks, to lay a row and then offsetting and cementing them together. I don't care how strong that brick is, if it is not interconnected with the other bricks, that wall is going to fall. Paul says that we have been given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good, together. And as he points out that this is for the manifestation of the Spirit, we understand that our use of the gifts that God has given us, our testimony of service done in the body is a reflection of the grace and power of God. When you exercise your gifts among and with God's people, it's for their good. When I use my gifts around you and you use your gifts around me, it brings us to the common good of praising and worshiping God because our eyes are taken off not only what God has done in our lives, but what God is doing in the lives of others. And so we're called to use them together, that our gifts are meant to be interconnected. Notice the various listing of gifts here, the way that they interconnect. Paul says to one is the gift of the utterance of wisdom, Right, which is the application of knowledge, but the other is the utterance of knowledge. There's not only do you understand something, but how do you apply it wisely. Then there are the interrelated gifts of, of faith, 
and healing and miracles. Then there is the interrelationship between, yes, the gift of tongues, but those who can interpret the tongues. These gifts are not meant to be in, used in isolation. Not only do we use them around each other, but we use them with each other and for each other because they're not meant to be used in isolation. This is reflective as God calls us to use our gifts for the common good of the character of God, who is himself self-giving. While God could be said to have all of the gifts, there is nothing that God is lacking in riches and power, in knowledge and righteousness. He lacks nothing. He needs nothing from us. He is self-sustaining, self-sufficient. Yet out of his fullness, he gives for the blessing of others. Even as the Son of God came to reveal himself as the fulfillment of God's redemptive promises, even as he could have gathered crowds to himself for the purpose just of their worship to be crowned king, he has a bigger picture. And even as he's doing this, he is blessing children and relieving the burdens of the aged, saving those demonically oppressed, feeding the hungry, giving sight to the poor, his gifts, his power, his goodness given for the good of his people. Our gifts are called to be used in the way that our Savior uses the gifts. The good news we receive is meant to be proclaimed to others for their good. Therefore, our gifts should be used in like one another, in that like manner, for the purpose of of proclaiming the good news and building up others so that they can proclaim the good news. This applies to the particular gifts of the Spirit, of discernment, of prayer, of compassion, and mercy, and preaching, and so on, but it's consistent with all of the gifts that he has given. Not just the charismatic gifts. We are first and foremost gifts to each other. Our resources are gifts. If we go back to Acts chapter 2, before we see pronounced uh, experiences of spiritual gifting, we see the church in Acts 2 sharing everything in common. When there was a need among them, they sold their possessions to meet that need because they understood whether it was a spiritual gift, whether it was a financial gift, whether it was an experiential gift, whether it was a gift of standing in society, it was meant for the common good of the body of Christ. Our spiritual gifts must be put to the common good for the primary means that Jesus uses to carry his work forward in the world is not the individual, but the church. The church that he calls his body. Ephesians 1, and 23, he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Often we need not only to ask, what is my gift? Or where can I serve? But if we are to use our gifts for the common good to say, how can I serve helpfully? Is this use of the gift about me, my ministry, or is it about how I can bless others? We have an annual Yankee swap here at Christmas. Where I come from, growing up in Maryland, we call them a white elephant gift exchange. Because there is a story told of a white elephant given to a great king. But the thing about white elephants in that culture was they were sacred. 
So while it was a beautiful gift, they couldn't do anything with it. They had to feed it, though, because it was sacred. And so it hung, an, an, as it were, a noose, a burden around the neck of the person that gifted it. The giving of our gifts aren't so we can say, I gave my gift. The giving of our gift, the giving of our service, is for the actual help, the actual good of the recipients among God's people. Also, perhaps you aren't sure what your gifts are, and you're not sure where to minister or what to do. While it's surely appropriate to ask, where has God gifted me to serve? If that isn't apparent, we can ask. We can say, I'm not sure what my gift is, but we can ask, where's the need? We can ask, what does the body of Christ need? Where is there a hole I can fill, a resource I can provide, experience I can share, presence I can offer? The gifts being used for the common good, I will admit, take communication. It means telling other people what we see the Spirit doing in their lives and encouraging them. It means asking how we can be used for the glory of God and the common good. But as hard as that can be, it moves the gifting away from us to the common good and the greater purpose, the glory of God. The Corinthians needed a change in perspective away from the gifts to the giver. What happens when we do that is we move from talking about what I've got to what I get to. Not from the gifts that I have, but that I get to know the living God by His Spirit. Not the gift that I have, the resources that I've got, but the community I get to serve alongside. Not the opportunity that we've got to promote ourselves, the blessings that we've got through the gift, but the opportunity to bless others. One Spirit has given us all our various gifts. The same Spirit that enabled us to know Christ. Would we use our gifts not in confidence in ourselves, but in the Spirit who is able to make us say Jesus is Lord, that He can use us for His glory? Let's pray. Lord, would we use our gifts for Your glory? Thank You that You do not leave the church on its own, but You resource us by Your Spirit. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.